This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan. South Africa, the nation that fought and dismantled apartheid in their backyard, has once again emerged as a country that we should learn from as they have taken the Zionist state of Israel to court. On the 29th of December, South Africa filed an application instituting proceedings against Israel in front of the International Court of Justice concerning Israel's cruel bombardment of Gaza, Palestine. Since October the 7th, Israel has brutally killed around 20,000 Palestinians, half of whom are children. On top of that, about 1.9 million people have been displaced which is 85% of the Gazan population. The bombardment and massacre have not stopped. Keeping in mind that the Palestinians have suffered 75 years of ethnic cleansing and illegal occupation by Israel. So just how important are the documents submitted by South Africa to the ICJ? What could be the outcome? Joining me on the show today is Dr. Jinan Bastaki, Associate Professor in Legal Studies at NYU Abu Dhabi. She's an international law scholar who focuses on human rights. Dr. Jinan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I want to start this conversation by understanding the legal structures um, at work right now. So what is the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, and how is it different from the International Criminal Court, ICC? Great first question. Um, So in terms of what they are, so they're both permanent international courts, meaning they're not domestic courts, and they both sit in The Hague. That's kind of the extent of their similarities. They differ in a number of ways. So the International Court of Justice is an organ of the United Nations. The UN has six principal organs. And it settles disputes of a legal nature between states that are submitted to it. So the ICJ doesn't go around looking for cases, right? States submit a dispute to the court, and the court settles uh, these disputes. And it also issues uh, advisory um, opinions. The ICC, on the other hand, uh, it was established, I mean, it's not a UN court, um, even though uh, um, the conference in Rome in 1998 uh, was UN-sponsored, but it's not a a, a UN court. Um, And the ICJ basically looks at disputes between states. It does not try individuals. It's like you can liken it to a civil court, uh, whereas the ICC is a criminal court and it tries individuals. Now, for our present conversation, this is important for a number of reasons. And one of them is that you might have heard uh, this contention that, you know, why is uh, uh, Hamas for not being uh, investigated at the ICJ? Right. So Hamas is not a state. It does not represent a state. And remember that Israel does not recognize Palestine as a state. Um, and so the ICC would be able to investigate individuals who have committed certain category of crimes. The ICJ looks at states only. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so the, the ICJ, um, deals with these disputes where states are concerned and the states have recognized the the jurisdiction, um, and the ICC, uh, tries, um, individuals for, uh, specific crimes that are enumerated in the Rome statute. So it's much more limited. 
The brutal events unfolding in Palestine, now whether it's the bombardment of Gaza by Israel over the past 100 days, um, the breaking through of Israeli siege by Palestinian resistant groups on October the 7th, or the 75 years of settler colonialism and ethnic cleansing by the state of Israel, do not impact South Africa directly. So why and how are they taking Israel to court? So first, we need to know what uh, South Africa is taking Israel to court for, right? Mm -hmm. So they're specifically taking Israel to court uh, or, you know, they're saying that there is a dispute with Israel over the genocide convention, right? And so... South Africa and Israel, they're both party to the Genocide Convention, the 1948 Genocide Convention. And Article 10 of this convention, it allows states to submit disputes regarding interpretation, application, and fulfillment of the convention to the ICJ. Now, uh, you're right that this, I mean, the the act that um, that uh, South Africa is alleging that, that Israel uh, is cur currently committing are not impacting South Africa directly. But there's something in international law called uh, erga omnes obligations. And that means these are obligations that a state owes not to a specific other state based on a treaty, but rather it's the, the, their obligations that the state owes to the international community as a whole. Okay, so it extends. It's not about a bilateral treaty, a multilateral agreement. It's actually this is owed to the international community. And so um, and so this is why uh, South Africa, seeing that it has the obligation to not only punish acts of genocide, because this is what the um, the Genocide Convention actually uh, requires states to do under Article 1, uh, but also to prevent genocide. So South Africa and all other states actually who are party to the convention, they have a duty to prevent and punish genocide. And so on this basis and on the basis of ergo omnis obligations, South Africa is uh, is bringing this case to the ICJ. What does international law tell us about what genocide means? So the definition of genocide under the uh, the Genocide Convention. So what it uh, what it tells us is it it enumerates certain acts that these acts can be considered acts of genocide with a certain intention. Right. And so in Article two of the Genocide Convention, it basically states that genocides are these a certain five acts, which I will uh, which I'll explain, um, that are committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, uh, racial or religious group. And the acts that are enumerated in this convention are killing, causing serious bodily and mental harm deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life that are calculated to bring about its destruction, again, in whole or in part, um, imposing measures to, uh, that are uh, intended to prevent births within the group and forcibly transferring children uh, of the group to another group. So these are the, the kind of the five acts that, that can uh, constitute genocide with the intent to destroy in whole or in part um, the um, the group. Um, and also more, and I mean, equally importantly, is that the Genocide Convention also states that there are certain acts that are going to be punishable, which are genocide. So the acts that we spoke about before, but also the conspiracy to commit genocide. So it's not that you actually committed, but there's a conspiracy to commit genocide, direct and public incitement to commit genocide, an attempt to commit genocide and complicity in genocide. Right. So you have it's not just that the state itself is committing, but then there's other 
um, uh, it's, you know, whether if you incite to genocide, whether the genocide takes place or not, uh, if you're complicit um, in genocide, these are all considered uh, crimes under the, the Genocide Convention. So South Africa submitted an 84-page document. It's a very in-depth document and it contains empirical evidence from various sources, right? Including um, UN special rapporteurs, um, journalists, rep- various reputable um, NGOs from all over the world. Now, as a legal expert, um, how do you view this document? How important is this 84-page document? It's incredibly important. I mean, just in terms of the uh, the collection of the the acts that constitute genocide, it's it's uh, it's incredibly robust. Um, and the fact that they rely, I mean, as you mentioned, they rely on you know reports by UN special rapporteurs uh, um, uh, as well as you know other uh, you know kind of UN documents, and they really focus on those. And this is important because it's you know these reports tend to be incredibly high quality. They're incredibly um, informative um, and robust, and also you know they're they're UN documents, so it would be pretty um, strange you know for the for for the the court to kind of to to uh, question their 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 validity um but even but just beyond that i think um the legal arguments um that are made are very robust uh very comprehensive um and they really preempt i think a lot of arguments that uh, that have been made and that will you know that also were made afterwards uh they've already kind of prevent uh, pre- preempted that so they talk about the self defense uh um um, argument. I mean, you know, even stating that that uh, that the past hundred days were were you know were self defense. They already cited. They said, you know, this is it. It is not self defense. There's no Article Fifty One uh, right. You know, because uh, the Gaza Strip is. Um, they're not uh, claiming that the attacks came from a state. And we find this reference in the 2004 advisory opinion of um, the ICJ. So just you know, for the for the listeners, um, Article Fifty One. So the UN Charter kind of prohibits the threat or use of force against uh, another state. Right. Uh, Article 51 gives this um, exception that unless it's in self-defense in response to an armed attack. Right. And so it kind of this the document also preempts a lot of uh, um, uh, these these arguments. Many people um, entered into this point in history by at at the moment of October 7th. That was their first Mm -hmm. entry point into understanding all of this. And their um, criticism is that. Um, Israel has to do whatever it takes to defend itself against the um, quote-unquote attacks they will face um, on October the 7th. How would you respond to those arguments? I mean, there's, there, there are a number of responses. I mean, I think just um, legally, um, like we mentioned, this, the Article 51 of, um, of, the, of the convention. I mean, so Israel is occupying the Gaza Strip. This occupation is a belligerent occupation. It is actually considered um, a use of force, right? It's it's um, it's it's covered under uh, the laws of war, right? Um, and so uh, so that's kind of one side of it. We don't start history on the seventh um, of October, right? The second thing is that the right to self defense 
right? I mean, as I mentioned, the 2004 advisory opinion on the wall, which kind of clarifies international law, uh, when uh, responding to kind of uh, Israel's assertion that they built the wall, wall uh, as, you know, to, to defend themselves, um, you know, from attacks, uh, the response by the court was, well, Israel is not saying that these attacks are coming from, from a state, so it can't be self-defense under the charter. Now, it doesn't mean, so your reader, your sorry, your listeners might be thinking, yes, but I mean, Surely, if a state is attacked, then they can do something. Israel can do something. They can use police force to kind of to repel um, an attack, right? But they can't do what they're doing. The final point is, even if one would say, one would argue, or one would assert that they do have a right to self-defense, even that has rules, right? You can't commit genocide in order to defend your state. There's no... Um, there isn't any circumstance that allows a state to commit genocide and even war crimes or crimes against humanity in self-defense. So I think these are really things that are really important. So even if somebody would say like, no, they 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 do have a right to to, to self or to defend themselves in uh, in in whatever way, um, it doesn't give license to attack civilians, uh, to bomb hospitals, um, to do all of the the things that we've been witnessing and seeing for the last uh, 100 days. So this um, 84-page document is is very dense and it contains a lot of technicalities. So from your point of view, what are some of the key highlights from this document? The document contextualizes, I mean, as you mentioned, um, you know, these attacks, not just as starting from, you know, October 7th, but kind of looking at this longer um, history. I think uh, the other thing is that the document obviously collects all of these different acts that constitute um, genocide. So you have really like a really um, robust breakdown um, of the the attacks that that Israel has been subjecting uh, Gaza to for the past um, 100 days, as well as uh, collecting the statements of genocidal intent. So remember when we defined genocide, we said that there has to be this intent to destroy the group in whole or in part. So the document also collects um, those uh, uh, those statements. and I think the other thing to pay attention to as well is the responses, I would say, like I mentioned before, to the the self-defense uh, um, arguments. Right. Because I think that was a big thing. And we see it a lot in the media. And it's emphasized over and over and over again. Um, and that, we ha- that these aren't mutually exclusive. So the application focuses on the actus reus elements over the mens rea elements what exactly does do these terms mean so usually in any kind of crime you have the actual act itself which is the actus reus like the actual physical so if i would talk about you know aside from the genocide convention if you would talk about homicide mm-hmm. right the act itself is that you go out and you kill someone right um the the mens rea is the mental element Right. So let's just say you have the actus reus of, you know, person A killed person B. I mean, it could be homicide, but it could be manslaughter. Maybe it was an unintentional killing. Right. So the mental element is the the mens rea. Now, the application does focus more on the actus reus element. So these physical actions, right, that are that are taken, you know, to, to commit this crime. Um, and we have to understand the purpose of South Africa's South Africa's application right now. So what South Africa is is doing now is actually requesting provisional measures. 
So the court at this point is not making a determination whether a genocide is occurring or is not occurring, right? Mm -hmm. What South Africa is doing is saying, look, we have sufficient evidence to show you that there is a risk of this and that there is a risk of irreparable harm and so on and so forth. So we need to order some provisional measures right now. So to say, you know, Israel to cease your actions and so on and so forth um, in order that the court can then later determine whether or not there is or there isn't um, genocide. So the reason why the, the application focuses more, because these are things that, are, I mean, they're just facts, right? Like how many tens of thousands of people uh, were killed? How many hospitals? Um, how many uh, evacuation orders? Um, how many? So all of these things are actually, they're just, they're facts. They really cannot, you know, you can, you can't really dispute them. Right. And so the reason we're focusing over those is because the request right now is not to determine whether or not this is genocide, but to actually say this is urgent enough right, that we need for the court to act now to issue this, these, you know, interim measures and to tell Israel you need to stop, for example, or you need to prosecute people who are making certain statements and so on and so forth. So while the, the document does mention the mens rea element, you know, they, they do collect the statements of many Israeli officials um, that are, you know, incitement to genocide, that they reveal the intention um, uh, to commit genocide. Um, you're right that it focuses a lot more um, on the actus reus because of simply the nature of this trial in particular, or these hearings in particular. On the show with me today is Dr. Jinan Bastaki, Associate Professor in Legal Studies, NYU Abu Dhabi. We continue our conversation after the break. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Darshan Johan and on the show with me all the way from the Middle East is Dr. Jinan Bastaki, Associate Professor in Legal Studies at NYU Abu Dhabi. And she's helping me unpack the highly important document submitted by South Africa to the International Court of Justice as well as the hearings that have happened so far regarding Israel's um, genocidal attempts or genocide in Palestine. Now, this conversation will also be available on podcasts. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on Spotify, the BFM app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you are listening to this on Spotify, do give us a follow and drop us a review. We would really, really appreciate it. So, Dr. Jinan, you mentioned the incriminating statements um, which was brought um, in the document. What does it tell us, the document, I mean, tell us about Israeli officials, including Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's very public statements on their intent to commit genocide? How incriminating have their statements been? incredibly incriminating. I mean, you know, the problem or quote unquote problem of the genocide convention is that there is this high bar of proving the intent to destroy a group, right? So when we talk about, you know, Bosnia, for example, I mean, people refer to it even in layperson's term, you know, the Bosnian genocide. But when the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for, for the former former Yugoslavia, uh, when it looked at obviously the, the the many atrocious crimes that were being committed, it ruled that the Srebrenica massacre, that that was a genocide, right? And not the others, because there they could find statements that really revealed this genocidal intent. Right. In the other, you know, there were other massacres, there were sieges, there were all of these really horrific acts taking place, but they weren't described or legally described. Um, as genocide, because it's really hard to prove, like most 
uh, officials and most people, you know, the, the individuals who are committing genocide, they do not incriminate themselves in such in such a way. What we're finding here is that it's almost um, unabashed, right? Um, you know, calling them human animals, saying that there are no civilians in Gaza, saying that, you know, it has to be, it needs to be made into rubble, uh, invoking, you know, uh, these biblical terms, Amalek, which is, you know, that you're going to destroy every single person. So these things just make it incredibly overt um, and blatant, which is not the case in other, in other, you know, if you, I don't know what you want to call them, you know, conflicts or attacks or bombardment, right. because it's very hard. Me, most, you know, again, these individuals, you don't, you don't incriminate yourself and say, we want to destroy all of these people. You know, the statements might be like, we need to get certain people we need to ensure that we are you know um uh, uh that that we get this area for example but these statements are incredibly overt and incredibly public right these aren't secret statements that are that you have to uncover and find some documents some you know uh, 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 uh communications between this department and that department they're incredibly public so it's incredibly incriminating actually and it's quite unique what does the document reveal about the level of atrocities committed by Israel onto Palestine and Palestinians? Because um, the you know the media has reported it, including ourselves. But submitting a document, a formal document in court, I think holds particular significance. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the um, the document itself, I mean, everybody says it's like it's you know it's eighty four pages. I think around sixty of those pages are dedicated to detailing. Uh, you know, something like between fifty and sixty, right? Of those pages are actually dedicated to um, to detailing, right? These uh, these crimes, and so um, and so what we're what we're seeing here that. You have it all collected in this in this one place. And again, we have to remember, I just want to reemphasize that this is not the trial that says this is genocide or this is not genocide. This is just provisional measures, right? So mm -hmm. this means that in the future, if the case goes forward, that there's going to be even further evidence. So can you imagine that at this stage, we have 50 to 60 pages of detailing specific crimes Right, the numbers of people killed and how they're killed, and the civilian structures that are that are that are that are being destroyed um, at this stage. So I think it's um, it really tells us. It's almost you know it's almost sad that it's only telling us this, this partial story of the past one hundred days. That if this case you know you know uh, uh, proceeds, uh, then you're going to have even more evidence that that is that is collected so i think that's something to keep in mind that these that even though it's incredibly detailed and comprehensive and robust it's for the purpose of requesting these provisional measures and that and that means that that's not the end of it which you know on the one hand it's it's quite impressive that the document collects all this information but on the other hand it's also incredibly disheartening that this is allowed to happen and to continue to happen before we talk about what could happen next, what exactly are South Africa's demands? So South Africa has like a number um, of, of demands and most of them fall under suspending Israel's military opera operations um, in Gaza, 
right? Um, and so most of their demands kind of fall under that. So basically um, saying that not only, you know, suspend these military operations, but make sure that any, you know, uh, that the military or irregular armed units um, don't take any further steps uh, uh, to further use military operations, um, uh, as well as desisting from committing acts that are, you know, outlined under uh, the genocide uh, uh, conventions, that they should rescind um, certain um, orders that, you know, these evacuation orders, for example, um, uh, as well as uh, take uh, uh, or, or hold to account um, those individuals uh, that are responsible for either committing uh, or attempting to commit or uh, inciting to uh, uh, to genocide, and then also ensuring that Israel actually submits a report detailing all of the measures that they've taken in order to comply with the order, right? And they give a time, like within one week of issuing this order. Again, like we're saying, these are just provisional measures. And so it's almost like, you know, we need to stop what's happening now uh, before uh, kind of continuing on with the um, uh, with the case itself. And so, yeah, so these are these are South Africa's demands at the moment. So the trial has been going on for a few days now. Um, what have you observed? Are, are there any important highlights from the tra- trial so far? So, I mean, at this point, we're just waiting, right? So we had South Africa's submissions on the um, and the hearing on the Thursday and then on the Friday, um, Israel's um, um, arguments as well. Um, and now, you know, it can take from a week to even to 40 days to we, we don't really know um, for the court uh, to issue to basically say that, you know, yes, it has jurisdiction and that these are the then that they've looked at the evidence and, you know, it, it's urgent enough that, you know, these provisional measures need to be uh, um, need to be applied. And so we saw them doing that in the Gambia, the Myanmar case, as well as the Ukraine, the Russia case. Um, and in those cases, um, yeah, and on the one hand, it took uh, 40 days. On the other hand, it took, um, I think, eight days um, uh, in order for the court to 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 issue it. So I think for now, we're actually just waiting uh, for uh, for the courts uh, to rule on these on these interim measures. And I think from the hearings themselves, we really saw the, the South Africa legal team, I mean, bring together an incredibly, incredibly eloquent um, um, argument. And, you know, they showed videos, you know, of, you know, certain, you know, of the destruction. They showed, you know, they played, uh, uh, you know, video and audio about these statements um, that are made, as well as making the link. So making the link between the statements that are made and the acts that are being committed, right? Because it's very easy to say, well, you know, all oh, these statements are being made and, you know, people aren't understanding them in the way that you're saying they are. But then actually showing acts that are being committed, right, um, as a result of these uh, uh, incitements to genocide uh, that that have been made by by different um, um, Israeli actors. So I think that on the South African side, on the on the Israeli side, I mean, it, it was actually a bit surprising um, how weak uh, the arguments were. I mean, I think. Um, Israel kind of, I mean, they made the argument that the court doesn't have jurisdiction, which I mean, a lot of respondent states uh, do. So this is not not a surprising thing. But they didn't really address, I think, many of the arguments that are made uh, by South Africa. They started talking, obviously, about self-defense. So so I think those are kind of really, for me, um, the the main highlights, the stark difference uh, between the South African legal team and the arguments that they brought forward um, and the uh, Israeli uh, legal team. 
Is the court political? Does it answer for or answer to any nation, particularly the world superpowers? I mean, it it doesn't. So the so the ICJ is basically it's made up of fifteen uh, judges, right? These judges they're elected to like nine year terms, uh, and who are they elected by? They're elected by the General Assembly and the Security Council, but they have to receive this absolute majority of the of the uh, of the votes in both of these bodies, um, and all states um, that are party to the statute of the court they have a right to you know propose candidates. Um, uh, and uh, and the court also sh- like should not or you know may not include uh, more than one national of the same state, and it has you know these mechanisms of the court has to represent um, uh, like uh, according to um, or you know uh, as they stated the main forms of civilization and you know legal systems in the world, and the court more importantly it's not composed of representatives of governments right so the members of the court they're independent judges. Um, and they have to make this, you know, this declaration that they're going to exercise their powers impartially and conscientiously, um, uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, does it have the potential to be political? Sure. I mean, there are certain, you know, judges that could, uh, you know, just vote in the way uh, of the the preferences of the state uh, that they're from. Um, and we do see that sometimes. But I think because there's 15 judges from many different places, it makes it hard for you to get a majority in that way. Um, so the current court, I mean, we have um, judges uh, from the U.S. and Russia and Brazil um, uh, and, and Lebanon and Jamaica. So it's an incredibly um, diverse uh, court. I mean, can it be political? I think sure. But I think what we've seen, I mean, even, for example, the 2004 advisory opinion uh, on the legality of the wall, um, it was uh, 14 to 1 ruled that the wall and its surrounding regime uh, were were illegal. Um, and again, even in the composition of that court, you had a very incredibly diverse uh, court as well. So potentially, uh, yes, you could say that. But I think what, what we've seen is it's hard for for there to be a sway, you know, one way or the other. So you mentioned that even the court deemed that the building of the wall it in and of itself is something that is very illegal, yet the wall was built. I'm wondering, um, what are we uh, looking at when it comes to outcomes from this trial? Mm-hmm. Can the ICJ force Israel to stop the genocide? So the advisory opinion in mm-hmm. 2004, it's, as the name suggests, an advisory opinion. It's actually right. not a binding decision, but it clarifies the law, right? Mm. Um, and so in that sense, I mean, yes, the court couldn't, and I mean, it it doesn't enforce because it's an advisory opinion, right? right? So that's the difference between advisory opinions and these contentious cases. For the For what we're seeing now after these hearings, so the court could decide to, best case scenario, scenario issue provisional measures, Worst case scenario, not issue provisional measures. Uh, in either case, the case uh, still moves forward, right? In terms of provisional measures, again, the, the ICJ will say Israel needs to do X, Y, Z. Um, and if Israel uh, does, you know, does not comply, uh, then it, it places it in violation uh, of the court. Now, if we move to the actual trial, let's just say, again, that the court rules that Israel is committing uh, genocide um, in this case. Now, the the decisions of the court, of the the ICJ, are binding and are not subject to appeal. Every member of the United Nations that signs the UN Charter agrees to abide by 
the decisions of uh, of the ICJ. Now, in general, decisions are they are complied with. Now, obviously, in this case, we saw Netanyahu say that you know no one is going to stop them, not even not even this court, right? And it's true that it does not have an enforcement mechanism. Uh, the Security Council is actually supposed to enforce these decisions, right? So if a court, if a state, sorry, is found that it is not abiding by a decision of the ICJ, uh, it's a Security Council that's supposed to kind of, you know, fill in that void or that gap um, and uh, uh, and ensure that the state abides by uh, its obligations. Now, the thing is, it's still significant, right? Because you're saying, well, it doesn't have any enforcement mechanisms. So, you know, even if it issues it and, and you know, you have these powerful states and they're just not going to abide by it. Because there are activists who are saying that they fully support taking Israel to the ICJ, but the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And that we're not just going up against uh, Israel, but the United States empire. How would you respond? How much teeth does the ICJ have in reality? I mean, it's still pretty significant, I think, right? So you have, a, you know, a decision of, you know, the highest courts in the world. Um, you have that Israel is actually taken to court in such a way for the first time. Um, you have this robust legal arguments. Um, and um, and I think it what it does also is that it emphasizes the complete disregard um, that Israel has, as well as its its patron, uh, the United States, for uh, international uh, mechanisms that are supposed to be, you know, that all members of the United Nations have uh, have agreed to, right, as part of this international system. I think the other thing that is actually pretty significant, um, if the court makes, um, you know, at a later stage, um, a ruling, and you know, it's a it's a positive ruling, is that it also creates obligations on third states. So, you know, if it rules that Israel is committing genocide, for example, or even now that there is a significant risk that, you know, this could be genocide, you will have other states. I mean, forget, for example, the United States, but other states that are going to now be careful, be like, are we going to be complicit in genocide if we sell weapons, for example? Right. So it creates this kind of this obligation on, on, on third states. The other thing that it can do is that you don't have to now rely on the enforcement of the court. If there is a finding that this is potentially that it's 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 um, that there's enough evidence to show that there is a risk, you know, um, of genocide. And let's say at the later stage, it's ruled, you know, that it is the individuals responsible can also be taken to trial in domestic courts under universal jurisdiction. So what is universal jurisdiction? So jurisdiction is usually the main form uh, that a state exercises jurisdictions over its territory, right? So you are in Malaysia, whether you're a Malaysian national or a national of any other country, if a crime is committed on Malaysian soil, who has jurisdiction? Malaysia does. Right. There are other forms of jurisdiction that are based upon nationality. So whether it's the perpetrator or the victim, so on and so forth. Universal jurisdiction actually has no relation to the identity or the nationality uh, of the, the, the perpetrator. Because, again, remember how we, 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 we talked about ergo omnis obligations, that we have these duties that are owed to all. So you have this universal jurisdiction that says if there hasn't been a trial of this person who is, you know, uh, um, accused of committing certain crimes, any other state that has the laws to do so can then try this individual for those crimes because those crimes are considered the gravest crimes that we cannot allow for any perpetrator of this crime to not be held accountable for it. So you have a very famous case 
you know, the Pinochet case, Pinochet is, you know, uh, Chile's, uh, you know, former uh, dictator, uh, you know, c- accused of committing many crimes, torture, forced disappearances, so on and so forth. And then, you know, when he stepped down from power, he passed an amnesty law. So that means that Pinochet was not going to be, uh, you know, tried in Chile. And so when he traveled to the United Kingdom, you had a Spanish court issuing an extradition order saying that this, that Pinochet, General Pinochet, is accused of committing these grave international crimes, and we would like the United Kingdom to extradite him to um, uh, to uh, to Spain in order for him to stand trial. And I'm not going to go into the details, you know, this is a very kind of fundamental, basic public international law case, but it was, you know, it was seen by the House of Lords that, yes, Pinochet can be extradited, right? Um, and so, you know, and and the, the Spanish courts, they can try him under universal jurisdiction because the crimes that he's, he was accused of committing are of our international crimes and they're of the gravest nature. Um, and so this is also, this is another potential outcome um, of, uh, of, these, uh, of this case, right? So you don't have to just wait for you know, uh, uh, for the for the court or for powerful states to do something. Now you have kind of license for other states uh, to to also um, to take these matters into their whole and or their own hands and you know, kind of the, the the legal domain. I think that's a good place to end this conversation, Dr. Jinan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Jinan Bastaki, Associate Professor in Legal Studies at NYU Abu Dhabi. As I mentioned earlier, this conversation will also be available on podcasts. You can look up Beyond the Ballot Box on Spotify, the BFM app, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you are listening to this on Spotify, do give us a follow and drop us a review. I would really, really appreciate it. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.